a black executive perspective. Look, man, they didn't get a chance to play chess. They had to play checkered. Let's talk about it, T. Openly and honestly. There was a lot of smart kids there. A black executive perspective. Now, my story's not unique. There's thousands of professionals of color who have experiences like mine. A black executive perspective. Whether you're aware of it or not, it's a topic that is often avoided. We'll discuss race and how it plays a factor and how we didn't even talk about this topic because we were afraid. A black executive perspective. In this episode, we are our ancestors' dreams. Tony Tidbit and Les Fry are joined by Bianca Reed, founder and CEO of Convey Culture. We'll dive right into the pinnacles of success as executives at top companies nationwide, all the while being unaware of the profound psychological implications of historical trauma and the ways in which systemic racism affects our current professional and personal lives. Welcome to a Black Executive's Perspective podcast, a safe space where we discuss all aspects related to race, especially race in corporate America. I'm your host, Tony Tidbit, and I've climbed the corporate ladder for 35 years, so I'm ready to sit down, break down these barriers, and address the topic of race in the workplace. Hi, and I'm your host, Les Fry, and we often avoid the topic of race in the workplace. The fear of not talking openly and honestly about race in the workplace hasn't brought us together. It's only widened the gap. And our mission here is to be transparent, authentic, to discuss topics that people feel uncomfortable discussing with the goal of educating, listening, learning, and inspiring each of us to finally come together as one race. And that's the human race. So in each episode, Les and I will be sitting down with compelling storytellers to hear their unique experiences, their challenges, their triumphs on their pathway to success. And in this episode, we're starting from the very beginning And as you know, centuries ago, some of our African ancestors were forcibly taken from their homelands and were enslaved throughout the United States and the Western world. And today, we're continually experiencing this never-ending fight against racial inequity. And as I reflect on our experience, which I often do, I realize many of us are unaware of the psychological implications that this historical trauma has placed upon us, compounded by the institution of systematic racism that even today has plagued our personal and professional lives. So today, our guest, Bianca Reed, who is the founder and principal consultant at Cave Culture, which specializes in inclusive communication, marketing, and business strategies, is here to help us understand these implications that Les spoke about and learn how to deal with these historical layers. Prior to starting Convey Culture, Bianca was the VP of Client Service and Inclusive Marketing for Rain the Growth Agency. In addition, she held sales and marketing roles at Coca-Cola, Kellogg's, and Hershey's. She has an MBA and a bachelor's degree in African-American studies and certificates in DEI and multicultural marketing. She's on the board of Living Corporate, a Black-owned digital media network that amplifies the voices of Black and Brown individuals in the workplace. Bianca loves hanging out with her husband, who's a physiologist. And just so you know, Bianca, I have a hard time saying anything with a phyza. All right? It's okay. It's all right. It's a complicated one. (laughs) He is in in, in the U.S. Air Force, and she loves hanging out with their four lovely children. She's a workout junkie, a proud Afro Latina. 
And she says that her plantains is her love language. So we definitely want to dive into that. And I know she's got some, probably some great recipes. So Bianca, welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast. Oh, thank you for that generous introduction. It is so nice to be here. Definitely a topic that I feel like is close to any Black executive's heart, but also just the journey of getting where we are always has amazing insights and little tidbits as we continue on this story. So thank you for having me. So true. So true. So real quick, tell us, where are you from? Where are you currently located? And tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah. So born and raised in Portland, Oregon. And Portland, when I grew up there, was a little bit different than the Portland you see now. There was very much an area of Northeast Portland where all Black people lived. Essentially, most of us lived in Northeast Portland. So despite Oregon being really white in my early stages, I was actually very much surrounded by a Black community. I grew up homeschooled. So I was homeschooled Mm. till eighth grade. My mother is Afro-Latina. So her focus in homeschooling us was to make sure we were immersed in Black culture Mm. and Latina culture and to really understanding our history. So I grew up with an awareness of how I needed to move in the world and experiences and awareness of investments that my ancestors made before I was even a thought. So they very much did that for me in early age. I'm one of six, so a very big family. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of us. Um, My parents divorced early, so really I was raised by a single mom. My father's very much present, but just that dynamic. Grew up in Portland. After that, I went to high school, and my high school experience drastically changed for me. I was in an almost all-white environment. The only kids at my school, I was related to almost every Black person at my school. That was a (laughs) culture shock experience to go from homeschooling and isolation to extreme exposure. Mm -hmm. I was also an athlete and dealt with kind of the dynamics of how athletes are treated. I think there's a lot of ownership of black bodies that comes with athleticism. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of dynamic there. From there, went to college on an athletic scholarship and my minor was supposed to be Africana studies. My major was business, but I just fell in love with learning about the diaspora of our people, how we move, how we got here. I'm trying to back away from using resilience quite a bit Mm -hmm. because I think so much weight comes with resilience, but the ingenuity of our people and that whole, I just wanted to be immersed in it. So I ended up graduating with multicultural studies and Africana studies, met my husband in college. He was also an athlete. Uh, He joined the air force, which Mm -hmm. I could go into the whole experience of black and military in that piece as well. Had four children We've kind of been to different places due to base locations, right. but I'm currently in Oklahoma because the military wow. is asking me to be here in Oklahoma is there's immensely kind people. There's an incredible history with when you hear Tulsa and those pieces, but there's also a lot of current aspects of Oklahoma that I find challenging. So it's kind of been this unique journey along with the workforce journey that you described in my introduction, but have four beautiful kids. My oldest son is at Howard. So it's been really exciting to hear his perspective on that journey and experience coming from West Coast and going to a historically black college. And then my other three incredible. So happy mom, good life, but so many great stories to tell. So thank you for having me. Wow. That is awesome. Thanks for sharing. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, you, your journey, um, just, just in terms of what you just got finished saying, and I, I know Les can, can, can uh, relate to this as well. You know, the journey in terms of how you grew up, the dynamics you had to go through, um, 
the thing that, you know, in terms of being sometimes just put in a situation, you had to be able to deal with that, right? And that's something we've all dealt with. You know, one thing about our people, we're, we're chameleons. We can be right. able to adapt in a lot of different areas. Um, but just real quickly, before we jump into our three questions, um, you say you're an athlete. So tell us a little bit in terms of like what, what athletics were you involved in? I ran track and in high school, I ran track and volleyball. And my father, when I was in high school, the rule was you always had to do a sport because <laughs> I think a lot of times in the black community, they tell you kids, like there's two ways to go to college. It's sports or it's a scholarship, but we're like, we're not paying for this, which I'm actually very grateful because I have no student loan debt. But that burden of like, you've got to make this sport work in order for you to go to college felt like I owned that. So track was something to me that was a way to open a door to a future. And mm -hmm. I was very invested. I didn't even initially want to run track, but my dad said, you will not go to a single dance. You will not go to a single social event if you don't run. Those are black parents for you. It wasn't like, do you feel like doing this? It was like, you will not do, you will not breathe unless you do this sport. So I was running track and I was blessed enough to be good at it and see success from that. But it also exposed me very early in sports to how people view ownership of black bodies within sport. I also did sport modeling and for Nike and Adidas. And so I got to see a lot of the background of the industry and how much we are consumers as well as athletes and how valuable we are in influencing culture and sport. And so within track and field, that um, idea that you'd have donors and sponsors and fellow parents of kids of you know, white kids who would think that because you're good at sport, you're somehow an asset to them as well. So met that dynamic was mm -hmm. really interesting kind of going into college with that. Um, I loved it. My college experience was great, but I also had a little bit of bitterness about not being able to own my imagery. Cause when you get to college, even if you build a career modeling or doing whatever you lose it because right. old NCAA rules, were Correct. Like, you can't own your image. And I saw so much overlap with that. And being black and not owning your body and right. owning certain things. So as an athlete, I was such an advocate. I'm so happy they have NIL now because these athletes deserve to own their image. Like it, it's such a small time period in which you can uh, capture that value. But also in sport, I fell in love with that self-improvement. To this day, I run because it's this freedom. I love supporting groups that invest in black people who are running in their health. We got to get more black people out there running. It's it's in your DNA. It's something that it allows longevity and black health is so important to me. So sports intertwines in everything I do to this day. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I love it all. Wow. Great background. Love your history. Um, you know, this is, you know, I think we talked about this in, in our pre-production meeting. You know, this is our first recording. We're so excited to have you. One of the things that we want to do, and we're going to talk about some heavy stuff today, and you're going to, you know, really educate us, you know, about, you know, are we our ancestors, you know, dreams. Um, but you just gave us a good background of who you are. But we, we have some little fun other questions that we want to ask you real quickly, right? Um, so I'm going to let Les kick it off, right? They're, they're, they're called the three questions. So Les, why don't we, we kick it off and then we'll get started. All right. So. You know, like I said, just, just think of something. The first thing that comes to your mind, don't think too hard about it. Just whatever comes out of your mind. So what was your first concert that you ever attended? How old were you and who was it? That's an easy one. My uncle uh, is a multi-talented band athlete. So we play seven different instruments. Ooh. 
maybe even wow. more, let me not misquote him. So he would get backstage passes to concert. He'd come into town. So no doubt Gwen Stefani was my first concert. We were backstage, oh, wow. got to meet everyone. It was really cool to see my uncle. It was him and one other black guy in the background. And he played all these instruments and multifaceted. So my first concert experience, I was spoiled. I that is go awesome. I and meet celebrities. And his love for music was just incredible to experience. But also I knew his journey on what it took to get there and being a kid practicing in his garage. So my first concert was pretty special to see my uncle on stage, Gabriel McNair. So look him up. He's really cool. But on stage. Oh, that's awesome. I, I think that it's, a lot of people don't understand that experience. My father is, uh, you know, I grew up in a musical family. My father was in a very successful singing group in the late 60s, early 70s. So the experience of actually being backstage and seeing how it goes and just knowing that you know somebody's on stage is overwhelming. You know, it's very surreal. All right. So here is an actor question. What is your favorite movie and that's a hard thing to answer so i'm going to give you top three man this is hard and i'm such a tv show person over movies so i have to like interpret okay let's do your tv shows in. So insecure hands down first time yes. i saw tv and felt seen and felt uh felt yeah just seen um in living color which is so old but growing <laughs> up watching that i was like we oh, all watch oh. that that's People not old because i was like well you will but um, growing up watching that experience was just, I'm like, I want to grow up and get a job. And then, and then this is a uh, belly and baby boy, which sound like really <laughs> weird choices, but the cinematography and the art and the impact on culture and just that exposure, I really like those books or those movies. Um, I will say I'm not a color purple person. I'm not, I can't immerse myself in sadness when I'm watching. I just can't. My soul yeah, can't I get do that. it. I get that. So beautiful. I get it, Oprah, but my soul can't. I like, I can't do it. Listen, that is so, that is so me. Cause when somebody tells me you're going to cry in a movie, I'm like, nah, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it if I'm going to cry. Listen, you sometimes know? crying is a good thing though. Right. I, you know, I, I go to a movie. Sometimes I cry, but I, I get it. I, I totally get it. Totally get it. Yeah, sometimes you just you want to go and escape. You don't yeah, want to go yeah, through, yeah, yeah. you know, emotions. You know, it's enough sadness in the world, so you don't want to cry at a movie. If, if anything, you want it to be a happy cry, but Color Purple, I knew it was going to be like one of the movie <laughs> cries, you know, centuries of not being seen cries. So that's why I was like, you know, I, I had to prepare myself for that one. Yeah. Our, oh, go ahead. You know, no, no, and I love Afrofuturism, so anything that's Afro sci-fi tech, so I love what Marvel's doing and kind of mm. adding a world that doesn't exist to our world so we don't have to navigate politics. It's a whole new world and we can be any character we want. I love but that. I do love that about Star Wars and Marvel. And yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and we need to see more Octavia Butler on, you know, sci-fi movies being produced by Octavia, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things that were created from her books. All right, so you've talked about several life experiences, life-changing experiences. Uh, in the in our brief discussion at the beginning of getting to know you, but can you pinpoint one that was so detrimental to your success, something that just transformed you? I think growing up, and it isn't just one; it's the the tiny pricks. You know, we talk about microaggressions. I think one that changed me was the identifying with my own blackness, because when you grow up mm. around a primarily white environment, they question your blackness all the time. You're not saying this right. You're not doing this right. And so I think there was a moment in high school 
where I kind of sat there and was like, you don't get to determine my blackness. Mm -hmm. And I remember this kid was sitting across from me, two white kids sitting across from me, and they were like, well, you don't talk like this. And you and I kind of had that moment where you don't define what blackness is. You don't come to my house and tell me what we're eating for dinner. You don't. So it was that moment of just, you're not in this culture to tell me how I identify or not. Or because my mom is Costa Rican and she identifies as black and Afro-Latina, but being told, well, you're not really black because and I'm like, you don't even understand the diaspora of where we come from. To say, what does really black mean when race is a construct that we establish here in the US? So to question who I am and my culture. And so I think it was that moment, I wanna say it was my senior year in high school, where I kept trying to adapt to fit something and kept trying to give space for that conversation when I never should have. And so finally I'm like, you do not get to tell me how black I am or how this I am or that piece. And so that was probably a pivotal moment for me. And then becoming a mother, because suddenly this fierceness of mm. you will not do this to my children or my children will not experience this. So those two moments really were pretty pivotal in kind of how I shifted and moved. That is that's awesome. A, yeah, yeah really love awesome. that. Really love that. Thank you. So you became Mama Bear, right? Oh, yeah. Black sons will make you, and my daughter too, but oh, I had three sons first. And I, oh, it made me fierce. And it it's a different environment raising Black sons. I, as a Black woman, I feel like even raising sons, their experience is different in the world, how they move, how they're viewed. It made me fierce. Yeah, totally get it. So number one, thank you for sharing. That's really important. You're part of the, the BEP family. So thank you. So are we our ancestors' wildest dreams? Are you ready to you ready to go with this? Let's get into it. All right, let's talk about it. Kick us off, Les. All right, all right. So we're using the statement, are we our ancestors' wildest dreams? Can you tell us what that means? And what part of the journey in your life comes to mind when you say, you know, we are our ancestors or are not our ancestors' wildest dreams? I think I've always had a baseline of understanding that just my existence, my freedom, how I move, I, I am grateful to the universe at this moment for what my ancestors have done to even get me here, right? So there's that base level awareness that you have as a little kid, even understanding slavery and civil rights. But I think when I really began to understand is when I entered the workforce and to enter the workforce in 20 or 2006 and still be so many firsts, be told you were the first salesperson we've ever hired that's black. You are the first this. And it was insane to think about how many firsts you're getting in the year 2000, right? Like in the year 2000 and beyond. And that's when I, if you felt that onus, like if I'm the first and I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, it was a pressure of, if you're the first, you represent what this experience will be like. How you move in this role could impact someone behind you getting the job. They're like, oh, I'm not hiring another black person because the last girl we hired, or the last woman we hired. So whether that's true or not, I felt that burning ownership of that. I also felt that I walked into places and I was immediate, I'd walk into a sales meeting and immediately there'd be judgment of they're black, they look too young. What are they? So it felt so much out of the gate pressure to show up and represent well and just this this high tier of performance you know you grow up and your parents always tell you you can, you have to be always on you can never yeah. be off you have to perform better yeah. you can't ever slip and so that pressure i think i felt that and 
never wanting to disappoint ancestors, but also understanding it, it was my ancestors and it was those behind me. I will be someone's ancestor. So that, that whole pressure, I think I really felt early and acknowledging that early. Let me ask you this in terms of dealing with that pressure, how did you, how did you overcome it? Because just, just to give you uh, some background, you know, I started off, I've been in sales for, you know, almost 30 something years. And I was the only black person. I was the only, then I got into leadership and then I became the only black sales director and the only black VP. So I definitely connect to you and what you're saying. So how did you deal with that pressure? I think I use it as fuel. Mm. I use it as a motivation. I, I, because of that sports background, I truly do think of things as a sport. So I'm unlocking achievements. There's a joke that goes around that black women collect degrees and certificates like Thanos collects gems on his ringstone. And it's true. I, the insecurity came where I kept feeling like I had to get a certificate to prove myself. Cause I'm like, you're not going to question how smart I am. So there was some of that. I definitely like to use data to prove like, I know my stuff and I am the best. So there's that piece. I think one of the ways I had to let go of some of the pressure on myself was to acknowledge that I get to be human. I get to move in this space. I get to make mistakes. I get to bring my full self to work. And when there's things happening in society that is directly impacting the way me and my family can move, I get the space to say something at work about those things. So I think there was the pressure of that, but also starting to release some of the control on perfectionism mm -hmm. and kind of saying, okay, you're going to get my full self because the other thing your ancestors didn't have always is a platform or a voice. So freedom to speak and freedom to educate those around you is still a new development. And so also holding on to that was really important to me. So if I'm in a room with you, you're going to get educated on something about black culture. You're going to get educated on something. I, I'm going to be an ally for us no matter where I'm, where I'm at in the space, but also advocate for those that are going to come behind me as well. Can I ask a question? So we are talking about the fact that, you know, you being the first in your office space, but let's say then, did you, re, did you get the equally the same kind of pressure being the first black person to black people? So like being yes, that icon okay. or that, that, that token black token, person in the, the workspace, right. You know, uh, you make a moves because you know how to navigate, but them looking at it as if you're trying to kowtow to, you know, your white audience. Yeah, it's hard. We we can hurt ourselves sometimes. We, we do hurt ourselves. Hurt ourselves. So, I mean, I um, there's okay. also this energy that I found happened a lot in Oregon where you would be the only one. And so when someone else entered their space, rather than focusing on all the other people that are probably impacting your role, you'd be like, oh, there can't be two of us. So that mentality also was hard to navigate where it's like we as a culture cannot operate like that because we shut doors for others. So it was dealing with that in combination because there would be times where I'd see a fellow black person be like, I got somebody. And I'd be like, whoa, why are we, why do we have attention? So I think there was that. I had to learn a lot. And in overcoming that, I will go first when I'm in a company and there's new black people and say, hey, tell me about the place. How do we win together? Not like, can you do me a favor? Because that's the other thing I think there's the tension, but like, learn. I want you to know me. I want you to educate. I want us to know each other in this space. So that was one thing that I've had to learn. Uh, the other piece with tokenism, I've fallen into it. I've been leveraged for tokenism more times in my career than I can count. There's times where I'm like, why am I on the cover of this? Or why? You'll be in every promo, every cover. When the executives come to town, you're the first one they march out. And 
I would all, I would struggle with that. And I had a mentor tell me, why does it matter to you? And I said, well, because I want to be more than that. They're like, you are more than that. So why does that matter to you? Are, do you think of yourself as a token? Do you know that you earn it? Do you know that you belong here? She's like, the white guy next to you isn't over here like, I'm a token. And they're used, you know what the white guy next to you says is I'm happy to be in this role. I'm collecting this paycheck. And so I had to let go of that. Like, not that I want to, you know, that comment move like a mediocre white man in this space. Like some of that, I was like, hey, they're not carrying that burden. I'm not going to carry that burden. Now there's things you have to fight about tokenism because I think there's this really unhealthy narrative that goes around that if you're black and successful, you're a unicorn in the space. And so I constantly would say, I'm not a unicorn. I know 20, 50 women in my circle who are operating at this level, who are excellent, who are well-educated. So I'm not a unicorn. So don't say you can't recruit more. You can't find more because I can tell you countless incredible people in my network. So that was the other thing is amplifying people in my network helped me feel less like a unicorn. Pushing buttons in other people's elevators helped me feel less lonely in the space. And that was something I had to do and network digitally and LinkedIn in those places. So I wasn't so isolated as well. So, I mean, and, and, and I'm looking at less, we're looking at each other because we can definitely every, I mean, it's, just, you know, sometimes when you're in these situations, you think it's only happening to you and you know, you hear stories and, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, it happened to them too. Right. So based on that, how did you tie, how did you recognize, you know, that, you know, historical trauma, right. Generational trauma, right. How did you tie those things together in terms of, you know, what our ancestors had to deal with in terms of when they walked around white people, how they had to not look around, look each other and they couldn't look them in the eye. They had to cross the street. And then even when they became free, they still had that slave mentality. Right. And then now we're in the 21st century. And yes, we have an iPhone and we can do a lot of different things. We have the technology and we have grown tremendously as a people. But to, to what you just got finished saying, there's still type of trauma, historical trauma that we go through. So, so talk to us a little bit about that. I think I still work through that trauma. I mean, I think there's a lot of trauma around money. There's a guilt when you make too much. There's a guilt when you make too little. There's what should I be doing in the space there? Do I make money and I'm leaving? How, who do I bring with me financially? How much? I, there's a lot of trauma, I think, around money. I had to learn about money to kind of release some of that trauma because it was the weird feeling of, I was a not spender because I'm like, I, this, the, the bottom could fall out any point because I think as a black person, I never could trust it. Right. Like I always felt like I'll be the first to get fired first to go. And that's a narrative. My parents would say to me, Correct. Like, you got to be careful because yeah. we're the first out first out. And, but I actually found in times there's a diversity game that plays where you're not the first out but you will get villainized a little bit as someone who gets to stay. So I can't tell you the countless times I had to deal with this diversity hire trauma, which also triggered me back to being the only, the only, the only. So letting go a lot of that trauma. I also think I was doing that in tandem with my husband who was in the air force and experiencing generational trauma as well, because he comes, he and I both had grandparents who were in the military and they had a lot of trauma, not, not about the military, but how they were treated. You serve your country and then you're treated like a lower citizen. Right. So he joins the space and there's so much opportunity in the military as a black officer. And there's so much growth you can have in investment, retirement. There's a lot. 
but that trauma is hard to overcome. That feeling is hard to overcome. So he and I both in tandem really have to constantly work through that. I think one of the ways we use is data. We use the data for us as a safety blanket. We look at growth and education. We look at the impact we're making. We use data to feel like we're making gains in things. So it kind of fights that generational trauma and therapy. Oh my gosh, therapy. I can't express enough. I stay in therapy and it's not because a singular moment. It's because being in the workforce can be traumatic. Being the only can be traumatic. Watching the news is trauma. <laughs> Raising kids in this environment is traumatic. So go to therapy. That's another thing I've had to do is just go and no pride about it. I'm like, I have to go because this world is hard on me and I still need to move and I have to be healthy and I have to function. So. Thank you for saying that because I think that that's something that our culture uh, we frown upon that yep. we've hidden it and we, you know, we're ashamed of it, but I agree with you hundred percent. Therapy has gotten me through a lot of things and has made me a healthier person about myself. You're talking about generations of trauma that has been placed upon us as people of color in this country. We definitely need that therapy. Imagine where we would be if we were talking out these issues in a safe, comfortable space, you know, about what we're going through. Sometimes it's trauma. We don't even know Correct. what we're going through. You know, so uh, thank you for saying that. I, that's awesome that you would say that. Thank and, you. And to that point, you know, the pride, because we carry so much on our shoulders and, and a lot of it, you know, to your point is what our parents put on us when they said, hey, you're going to be the only one. You never make any excuse. You show up, you do 110 percent, all those type things. So even though to your point, we go through this trauma the last thing we want to do is raise our hand and ask for help because sometimes we look at that as weakness when to be fair, it's not weakness it's strength, right? Because we need that. So have you ever been in that situation where you felt that I don't really want to ask knowing that I'm going through all this stuff because somebody's going to see this as weak as weakness. Let's hear a little bit about that. All the time. I think there's an in, I, would do so much behind the scenes education because I didn't want to use the resources around me because I feel like if I asked or if I didn't know, it it showed incompetence or something. Mm. And to that point about ancestors, it showed like I didn't deserve to be here because I didn't know what I was doing. And so I would seek out mentors outside of my space, outside of my workplace. I'm like, can you walk me through this? Or I don't know how to do this. Uh, I think one of the hardest parts was becoming a manager of people because you would be a black person managing people who resent you for being there, manage people who do not feel like you deserve to be in your position. So the way they treat you, I, when I, in my very first management job, and I've told this story before, but in my very first management job, I was hired over an existing person in the team. So this is because this existing person was expecting a promotion this was my first management job. So on paper, this guy was like, you don't deserve to be here. Now I had a degree. I had more stats than he had on, on all those pieces. So I was qualified to be there. But in my very first meeting, my boss let me know. And the woman above me, two people above me had hired me as a black woman. And she said, I'm hiring you because you're up for this challenge. It's going to be work. And I still know her today. And she's like, it's going to be work. Are you up for the work? She pulled me aside and said, are you up for this? And I'm like, yes, I got it. You know, the young optimism. Right, 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 right. I got the, you know. And then I got in the space and my direct boss, a white guy who is a mentor to me to this day said, hey, you are up for some challenges. And I said, okay. 
got in there and first day I met my whole team and the guy raises his hand. I'm like, what do you all want to know about me? I did my intro and guy raises his hand and says, how does it feel to be a diversity hire in front of my entire team? So he said that. And Yeah. 25 years old. I'm sitting here in front of a whole team. How does it feel to be diverse? And never, most people are twice my age and I'm managing. And I had to, this is why I lean on data and education. I had mm-hmm. to pull back and say, okay. I said to him, I said, no, we're going to do something right now. So first we're going to talk about why that's disrespectful, but first we're going to do something. Everyone in the circle go around and tell me what is something unique about you while you're in this role? Tell me something. And they were like this, I'm this, I'm this. And we went around and I said, so you're all diversity hires. Cause I didn't hire cookie. We didn't hire cookie cutters. That's an excellent question. So I mean, all of you are answer. diversity hires. I am my diversity hire because I have my, I have a degree. I am a diversity hire because I have this level of experience. I'm a diversity hire because I had a hundred for 150% growth in my last four sales roles. And I gave him the receipts and I'm like, so you're thinking I'm my diversity hire because I'm black. I'm a diversity hire because you need something on this team from leadership that you didn't have before I got here. And it was that kind of energy that I'm like, you're not going to play me like this. And so and then I pulled him aside and I was like, Hey, it was racist. It's not going to happen again. And he's like, well, then and I said, no, 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 don't, don't do all blustering. We're going to call it exactly what it is. You wanted to take me down a peg. You wanted to establish something in front of the team. We can do this one or two ways. I can be your advocate. I don't plan to stay in this role forever. I plan to get promoted. I'm going to tell you that right now. I plan to get promoted in this role. So we have a couple ways of doing this. I can help you get this role after I leave and you can grow and you can learn or you can keep that attitude and we all know where this will be headed, right? Like we all know where they're investing and it's, you know, and he and I were great. He took over the role after I left. I, it was a full education in the space and he and I had some very tough conversations, but it was in that moment where I was like, this, I can't do this. Like I can't operate in this space. If, if I don't set the tone now, they're going to break me. And I refuse to let you break me in this moment. Cause I got kids to feed some of that time. Just, I got kids to feed. That's the reality. So, so in other words, you said, how do you like me now? <laughs> if you want to play this game, you sir, know, you don't understand. You want to talk about resilience? You have no idea. Let me show you what I can withstand. Let me break it down for you, right? So It's so sad. It's so sad that we have to actually do that. You know, we have to go the extra mile when we're in that. I do have a question because this has been killing me. I have to ask this. So as a black woman in a space of leadership, making moves and making some very difficult decisions, how do you face being stigmatized as the angry black woman? Mm. Oh, this is a good one. And my family teases me about this all the time. So I'm just going to be completely honest. I, that I've been fighting. So you can't tell by me sitting here, but I'm not just, I'm 5'10". I'm really muscular too. So when I, I'm a force, like when I walk in a room and I have heels on, you're talking about someone six feet. So you're not already people feel aggressive. Like I think I feel aggressive to people already and I can't help it. Right. There's nothing I can do. So that was the first step is there's no hiding when I go into a room, it's more than skin color. And then you have that angry black woman. I am someone who believes in gratitude and joy. I cannot function in anger. And I've had to say that to myself. So not only am I fighting a trope, but when I get angry, I feel like it's like you have a rash or an infection, like it's eating at me when I'm angry. And I know that sometimes people lean into their anger. I am not, I lean into, I have to look forward. I have to look at a vision. So I really fight that. 
but me fighting it does not sometimes change the way I'm perceived. So there's times my family teases me because they're like, your voice when you go to work is like, yes, I'm so excited. Da, da, da. And I'm like, you know what? I have to do that because I feel like I have to do it because mm-hmm. I have to, I, I feel like I have to create a softer space at mm-hmm. times. I feel mm-hmm. like I have to do it, whether that's true or not. So I'll acknowledge I do that. I soften my approach. I am extremely careful in the way I voice complaints. Like I'm very clear on solution-based orientation. Like when I say I don't like something, I'm not coming to complain. I'm coming with it. I think we have an opportunity here and I'm coming with a solution because that's the only way I can fight anger. I can't simmer in it. But that trope is hard. I had a manager one time tell me in feedback, they said, you know, you're doing great. And she goes, but you need to be aware of something. When you walk into a room, it's too much. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what am I doing? You need to be aware that you're already tall. You're already, this. you have a big wind. She brought up how I have a long wingspan. She's like, you walk in and when you talk, you talk so much with your hands. I just need you to understand that you're taking up a lot of air in the room. And wow. I was young when I got this feedback. And so I didn't, I was like, am I doing, like I said, am I being loud? Like I was really trying to figure out you're a manager. What am I doing wrong? And I said, so is my performance bad? Like, None of that. You just need to be honest. You need to be cognizant about how you make others feel. And that was like a moment for me in therapy. Cause I'm like, I don't know what to do. Do I be less? And I, and I had to work through that feedback, but some of that did impact how I moved. And for a while I was shrinking in mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. having, and I had to get back out of that. It wasn't, it was the anger, but also just, I was, she wasn't even saying I was angry. It was like your very visual existence feels like a threat to others. That was hard. So I fight the angry black trope. I lean into joy. Um, and when I'm angry, I use my anger very strategically. Like when I am angry, you will know the difference between my joy levels and this angry level, because I, I actually think there's a power in anger at times when you're like, this is unjust and you need to feel that coming off of me. So I'm very strategic with my anger because I think it is a tool, but it's just, you fight that trope all the time. I hate that. I. It's not it's, fair. It's the not kindest, most generous people I know. Cause we fight angry black women and we fight this mammy trope that we're mother to the world. And I'm like, how are you going to do us like this on both sides? I just, I, I wish there was a way that we can dismantle that image because there is just nothing uh, more wonderful about us that we are expressive and that we are so colorful as a people um, and how we represent ourselves. I mean, you know, You've got millions of people watching comedy and series that are written about us as people and are full in interested in who we are, but yet and still in the workplace, you can't accept who we are. And that's and that's intimidating to you, just us being ourselves. You know, I don't know how we're gonna change that. I really don't. Well, hopefully- and that statistic on anxiety that came out about women and that's how we express our anxiety, our depression comes off as anxiety. Yes, we are anxious. Imagine being in the space and you're a threat and you're always angry and people are looking at you. Like, that's enough to drive anxiety. So it also impacts our health. And you talk about generational trauma, they see it in your DNA, that stress. So like, we have to dismantle that. It's hard weight to carry. There's no question. And we have to deal with all that and then still deal with life, right? (laughs) Which is a whole nother, you know, situation that we have to deal with. You know, Number one, I, I, in today, in 2023, why is it that people are still uncomfortable around strong, 
you know, African-American individuals um, where, you know, if if when we're being who we are, who God made us to be, when we're out doing what we're supposed to do, when we're out driving revenue and we're out, you know, coming up with ideas and we're, you know, building you know, dynamic teams that, you know, bring all different type of innovation and, 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 and culture it's like, why can't we just, why do people still feel uncomfortable around us? So hopefully, you know, with you appearing today and sharing your stories, you know, this is what we want to be able to get out, you know, from BEP, from Black Executive Perspective Podcast, to be able to educate people that guess what? We're just no different than anybody else, <laughs> right? So let me ask you this, though, Bianca. You talked earlier about, you know, your manager who promoted you, and um, said, hey, are you up for this task? And hey, you're going to have to deal with this. And you're still, you know, tight with that person today. How did you create dealing with everything you had to deal with, all the, the, the microaggressions and the tropes, and then obviously the stress and the whole nine yards? How did you go out and create allies as well? What I've found in creating allies is, and you, you opened the podcast talking about we have to be chameleons. And I have found you can find commonality with anyone, almost anyone. Mm -hmm. I find that one too. I think that it, and this is well talked about, but your mentors will not always look like you. Mm -hmm. People who can open different doors will not look like you. So one thing I use is my work. <laughs> my work was one way that I brought out, like doing quality work, being top salesperson, doing all those things was way I opened doors because I wasn't coming to them as, Mentor me as a black woman in the space. I was coming to them as mentor me as your top salesperson on this team. Mm. Mentor me as the as the leader on this team as a top performing. So I really always opened with that. I was always I went to whoever was performing the best. So whether they were black, white, whatever they I went to who was performing the best. And then when I faced challenges, I went to people who may have had similar journeys or had overcome it. So that was one of the ways I found mentors in the space. But I'm someone who fully believes in karma. So I would mentor as much as I would give. So I would also, someone new would come in. And oh, that is probably my favorite thing to do in the work environment is push buttons and elevators and open doors for others. So I would find new employees. And as a VP, I would be the first person to email them and say, hey, welcome to the organization. If I can ever be a resource, please let me know. Because in the same breath, that young person has never been exposed to a Black executive. And I need them to see see the warmth I'm giving you, see the investment I'm giving you in your career, see how much I care about this organization, how excited I am to have you in this organization. Moving like that, people think that you only go up. I've had young people who've opened doors for me because I haven't even been in a room. And when asked by senior leadership, who had the greatest impact in your career, they've said, oh, Bianca did because she did this on the first week I'm here. Or I've had new hires in a company say, I came to this company because I saw an article she wrote. And so that really taught me like to mentor up and down, not just to solely mentor. Um, and I also think when you are mentoring someone outside of your race or outside of your experience, you, when you are working with them and they're, you're mentoring them right back. So if I had a, one of my most, one of my best mentors was a white guy who just invested in me, but I mentored him right back. He would say things and I'm like, mm, no, that's not, no, no, no. Let me educate you on why that's not right. Because we need to, you need to have mutual mentorship. And so they saw a value in my partnership with them and I wasn't just doing them a favor. So that's been hard. And I, 
I'll be honest, I've had more white men support my growth than I've seen. And I've had women too, but it's been really interesting to see how much I've had white men advocate me for in the space who genuinely were doing the work, not just like, I like you, you're pretty, let's do it. You know, like he genuinely invested in the work of mentoring Tim. My girl, I can see why you've been so successful in your life. <laughs> I mean, you're a blessing. I mean, it's, I mean, just to sit here, we can stay here all day and just listen. I learned a lot, right? I, you know, I'm taking mental notes. I'm, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. And, 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 and obviously, you know, I can see, you know, you and your husband, you guys are building a great foundation for your children, obviously, because unfortunately they may have to go through some of these same things, right? So just real quickly, tell us a little bit of how you bring them up the areas that you dealt with and how do you prepare them for life moving forward? I think the hardest thing as a mother is to see this son and my, my, um, my bonus son, my oldest is my bonus son. And then our first, my first son together was my son, Baron. And he is this beautiful chocolate drop of a baby. And he was just, he came out and he's dark and just, Oh, he's beautiful. And I was just obsessed. And I'm thinking how, how can this world not see him, anything other than perfection. And then you watch this thing happen where your kid goes from your baby to a threat and you move from people telling them, and even as a baby, people would come up to me like, they're so tall. Is that normal for black kids? And I'm like, look at me, I'm a giant. He's like, why are you like, it would just be little things where you'd see the microaggressions happen. And then you'd see the flip between when your baby became a threat, he hit 11 and he got really tall. And this happy, smiling child who would not hurt a fly is now shrinking in elevators and startling people and can't work. Oh. And so as a mother, I think you have this optimism that I, my parents had to tell me that, but I won't have to, my husband and I were like, we won't have to tell our kids the same thing. And then as parents, we're like, oh no, not only do we have to tell them the same thing, but now we have this added layer of digital experiences where anything they do in the world is recorded in the momentum. So as parents, we are very cognizant of like, here's how you have to move in the world being black. And we have that conversation with them. We have it regularly and it's heartbreaking and I hate it. And there's times where we go in stores and I'm like, take off your hoodie. And I want to rip my insides out when I say that. Cause I just hate that feeling. Cause their white friends have hoodies on and sticking food in their pockets. And they're like, going to pay for it at the register. And I'm like, you don't do that. Cause we'll all, you know, if they have to move differently. Uh, and so as a parent, I'm, we're constantly doing that piece, setting that safety, what I call is just safety and precaution. But we also tell them how big the world is. And we make sure they travel internationally because how you are viewed in America feels so different. When they go to Costa Rica, no one's looking at them that way. When my, That's where my mom's family is from. They, no one looks at them that way. They move differently. So we expose them to the world is one key piece. We travel with them, even within the United States. We travel with them a lot. Because the bigger their world is, the more they see the impact they have, that they can move differently. So that's our thing as parents. My daughter, now raising a young Black woman, she's the baby, so she's way younger. It, it is, it, it's hard to not infuse my fears and my things into her. So I'm very cognizant of like, what is necessary for her and what are just trauma that I'm passing along. So there's, there's a weird balance of the two that we really work as parents. Um, but they're doing incredible and they're very aware of it. So, and we don't hide news from them. We're very transparent. We navigate it emotionally, but it's hard to be a black parent. I, I, it's hard to see your baby seen that way. And 
And over-sexualize is another thing they don't talk about. To have your 14-year-old son have grown women and it's okay to them because you're black. And they're like, oh, but they don't see them as children. It is crazy to move, yeah. I um I have to make a statement here about this because as someone who grew up in the uh, 60s and the 70s and the 80s in that time period, I became a flight attendant in the 80s. And um, my world prior to being a flight attendant was very black and white, being raised in Missouri, you know, um, it was very black and white. Traveling overseas just changed me, changed me. I can't encourage people enough to do this, especially our own people to travel. You know, a lot of us stay within the peripheral of America and that's fine, but save your money and travel across the world. Go and see how we are treated. There is something to be said about the black artists uh, of the 40s and the 50s and why they traveled to Europe. Now, we're not saying that racism doesn't exist there. It does. Correct. But the perspective of who you are as an individual is so much more different than this young country that we have here in America, what, what people think about us. I tell you that you, you've you given so many flowers of wisdom here today, honestly, but that's important. Traveling. Traveling. Be a James Baldwin. Be a James Baldwin. Be a James Baldwin. So true. Baldwin. Like, go see and give your. Be a Josephine Baker. Learn another language. Learn another language. Yes. And go and travel. Yes. The importance of learning another language and being in a space where someone speaks that you're capable of communicating with somebody else because we. We, um, I hate to say it, that we are, we can be that ugly American when we go to Europe that expects everybody to focus specifically on us because everybody should speak English, but learn, be a polygot, learn the language, learn the culture elsewhere, and then travel and use that. I tell you, that's gold. My best experience with when I, with marketing was when I went to Japan when I was in high school and I went to Japan and when I was in Japan, all the people would come up to you and the stereotypes they felt about black people because what they had seen on the media and they're asking all these questions. And it made, it gave me perspective one on the damage we do in the U.S. with marketing. So that got me really passionate at a young age about inclusion marketing and what's in media and those pieces. But as a marketer and as someone who's in business, the power you have to influence black representation in the world, everyone talks about it like a U.S. thing. And I'm like, no, when you see bad TV and damaging things, it has a global impact on how we move. And so to be in those countries and kind of see that, and even within another country, they're like, oh, well, I didn't know that about you. And you're educating it. It's an incredible experience. And I also think more marketers go travel, see how we're seen. It will make you change the way you build creative too. So true. So true. But I will tell you this today has been an incredible experience because you have joined us and you have blessed and you've passed along a lot of wisdom today. And obviously we probably will be our, our ancestors. You know, we've, we've lived up to their dreams, right? At the same time, we're still dealing with a lot of, you know, things, a lot of trauma that, you know, they didn't specifically deal with, you know, back in the 1600s, but it's a different type of trauma. However, today you provided us a lot of anecdotes in terms of how to deal with that, right? Number one is accept it, be real. Number two, you said use data, right? You use data and you break things down. You talked about therapy. 
Okay, in terms of being able to go and have therapy and 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 be on and be open. That's that's a level of strength. You know, in corporate America in leadership roles, you talk about, you know, how you mentor up and, and down, right? That you you help those who who help you and you you come in and you make a big difference by being friendly and creating a great culture. And then you also spoke about being an ally, right? And working with allies and, and, and understanding, but not only uh, learning from them, but also mentoring them as well. So I can tell you right now, if our ancestors are looking down and they're listening to this recording of a Black Executive Perspective podcast, and they heard what Bianca Reed said today, I can tell you flat out, they are definitely proud. So we want to thank you for your love your passion, the way you engage, your intellect. And the question I have for you is how can the BEP family help you, Bianca? You know, I'll just share a couple ways to work with me. So I did uh, launch a company and it's been active. For, it was my side baby to my heart. And then I recently went, um, I felt like it was in a place where I could grow it. So Convey Culture is my consultancy. I work with inclusion. I do consulting for inclusion marketing diversity, equity, inclusion, but the way I pro approach diver diversity, equity, inclusion is very much actionable. So how do your sales, marketing, creative teams move in a way that allows you to have sustainable growth for your business? Because by 2045, we'll be a majority minority nation. Mm -hmm. So any, any business who is not looking at that forward facing of what our country will look like, it will not be sustainable in the future. So when you see these companies like we're getting rid of the DEI and the politics that are happening at the moment, you're fighting a tide you can't change. So like that's the move forward. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at queen.b.read and you can see all the family journeys and just it's mom stuff. It's heavy mom stuff. But probably the best place to follow me is on LinkedIn. And I mean this, if I can be a resource, if I can push buttons in your elevator, connect with me. If there's someone in your network, I'm always happy to do that. Um, and that's pretty much all the good things. Yeah, I do have a podcast called Convey Culture as well, but you'll find all of that if you go to the www.conveyculture.com. That is awesome. I love the queen B. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. You definitely <laughs> fit the profile, my girl. <laughs> thank you. Well, look, thanks a lot. We really appreciate your energy and we hopefully, thank you know, you. we would love to have you come back at BEP sometime. And we're definitely going to connect because we would love to affiliate with your organization, and we can continue to work together. So you have a brother and sister over here at BEP as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. These are important conversations that have just an immense ripple effect. So congratulations on your podcast. Thank, thank you. you. So based on the, uh, the episode uh, today with Bianca Reed, Are We Our Ancestors' Dreams? And we talked about the historical trauma that they dealt with, that the trauma that they dealt with, but also the trauma that we deal with today. So today's tidbit is an, an unknowledged trauma is like a wound that never heals over and may start to bleed again at any time. And that's from Alice Miller. And that is so true because as you were telling us today, Bianca, you know, things that just you thought you were good and all of a sudden they come up. Right. And then you start bleeding again. Right. So, you you know, the way you have to deal with that trauma is by that data and, 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 and therapy and stuff to that nature. So thanks a lot for the education. All right. Good. We good on the tidbit. All right. We're so we're all set on this end. <laughs> 
Bianca, thanks a lot. Love you a lot, my girl. And, oh, that and was wonderful. Thank you. It was, it, was, it was fantastic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Tony Tidbit, A Black Executive Perspective, and for joining in today's conversation. With every story we share, every conversation we foster, and every barrier we address, we can ignite the sparks that bring about lasting change. And this carries us one step closer to transforming the face of corporate America. If today's episode resonated with you, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode with your circle. And with your support, we can reach more people and tell more stories.